Well, good to see you all. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Ezra. So if you will, turn with me to Ezra chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the entire thing. I'm grateful that I didn't have to read it with all those names. So thanks, Phil, for taking one for the team. Ezra chapter 4. Now, as you go there, um, I wonder, have you ever uh, had a conversation with someone and they said that they were praying for an open door? I, I assume that you've, you've had those sorts of conversations. Well, this morning, my concern is less about the door, and it's more about when you walk through that door and what happens on the other side of that door. Right? You, you pray for that job, you get that job, and then you hate that job. You, you pray for that ministry opportunity, then you get a ministry opportunity and it just doesn't go the way that you thought it was going to go. One might think of one sort of historical example. uh, And if you think of the missionaries, John and Betty Stamm, some of you might know that name. Uh, There's a famous missionary biography written about them. They were missionaries in China. God opened the door for them to go to China with the Chinese inland mission They had just gotten married. They began learning the language. Their team started expanding. Their influence started growing. The kingdom looked like it was advancing. The light of Christ seemed bright. And then one day, they heard a knock on their door. They were rounded up by the army. They then marched to their own execution. 27 years old and 28 years old. They were just kids, weren't they? A door that opened so fast and so bright closed so quickly as well. So, so often we pray for open doors, but, but that doesn't mean that walking through doors is easy, is it? Behind every door are difficulties. The Christian life, following Jesus, they're filled with triumphs and hardship. They're, they're filled with blessings and seemingly curses. The, the road of Christian discipleship, it's not really a paved road, is it? It's a graveled road filled with potholes. Now, don't get me wrong. It is a blessed journey. It is the only journey worth taking. And yet, it's filled with opposition And you don't need to read Pilgrim's Progress to know that. Just look around this room. All of our lives are testimonies to that reality that following Jesus can be hard and there can be opposition. This morning, as we look again at the book of Ezra, we find difficulties. We find opposition. And actually, what we're going to find is, starting in chapter 4, all the way through the end of Ezra and the end of Nehemiah, There is opposition that follow God's people at every turn. In many ways, it's one of the major themes in the book of Ezra. And it shouldn't surprise us. Wherever God's people have been, wherever God's people have taken root, wherever God's people go, opposition follows. Often often hidden, sometimes subtle, but nevertheless, true opposition follows. Follows God's people. 
This morning, I'm going to give you this big idea. It's a simple idea. It's a profound idea. It's what this chapter is all about, and it's simply this. It should be on the screen behind me. God's work will be opposed, so endure. Endure. Now, before we get into chapter 4, we need to kind of talk about a few things. Um, Maybe as Phil was reading it, you were a bit confused. There's a lot of details, a lot of names, and these names, they sort of don't mean anything to us. But though those names might not mean much to us, those names meant something to the original audience. I mean, if I was having a conversation with you and I said, this or that happened in, in the time of FDR, or if I even went further back and said, like, in the day of Queen Elizabeth or Queen Victoria, right, you would be able to sort of peg that and go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's that era. Well, these names like Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, those are just names to us, but they meant something to the original audience, and it, it really historically situates this text. And so when you put these pieces together, when you just look at the kings listed, you realize something very, very curious. Chapter 4 is not written maybe like we would write it. Chapter 4 doesn't flow in a sequential order. What what you see is from verses 1 to verse 5, you have, you know, picking up in chapter 3. And then starting in verse 6 all the way to to verse 23, you have a fast forward in the narrative. Right? Not a flashback, but a flash forward. It's sort of a, a literary parenthesis in the story. So in chapter 3 and the first few verses of chapter 4, God's people are beginning to, to resettle Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the altar and the temple. Things are going great. There's, there's sort of movement and joy. And then opposition comes. And then the author goes, oh, th- that sort of opposition reminds me of some other opposition. You might experience this. Um, my family calls this sort of spider webbing, right? You've had those sort of conversations where you're talking to someone and they're telling you a story and it reminds them of another story, then another story, and another story, and they're kind of webbed together by a common thread. Well, that's what the author is doing, right? He's talking about one particular opposition and then they flash forward about 70 years ahead to talk about another opposition. That's the thread that goes through this entire chapter. So let's look at this opposition. Go go to verse 1. God's people, as we learned last week, they're rebuilding, but they're not the only ones in the land at this time. And so some prominent leaders of the kind of surrounding area go to Zerubbabel, Israel's leader, who you can think at this point is the general contractor for God's people. And in verse 2, they, they have sort of a, a, a simple request. They ask if they can have any part in the rebuilding process. Right? They, they, they say, verse 2, let us help you rebuild. And then to sort of incentivize this help, they say, I mean, after all, we worship the same God. This only seems natural. Now, if you're thinking that Zerubbabel's sort of philosophy is the more the merrier, nope. Not here. Be sorely wrong. He denies them any part in the rebuilding process. That's verse 3. Now, what's going on here? On the surface, you might be thinking, 
Come on, Zerubbabel. I mean, have you ever been in a, a small group or, you know, done a group project? Be, be a team player here. Well, why wouldn't you invite them into helping lay some brick and, and hammer some nails? Well, thankfully, our, our, our author actually gives us a framework to kind of think through what's really going on here. If you go back to verse 1, the author makes it pretty clear that these surrounding people, they're enemies. Now, that might just be the author's hindsight. But even hindsight contains with it some insight. And if we go back to chapter 3, we also learn that God's people, they're terrified. They're fearful of these surrounding people. Now, who are these surrounding peoples? Well, the mention of the king of Assyria who brought this people back in this land, it's actually pointing back to another story in your Bible. You don't need to go there. Uh, if, if you want to, this week or this afternoon, you can look at it and read it. It's the story of Second Kings chapter 17. Uh, Assyria had overtaken and uh, conquered uh, uh, the northern kingdom. And then Assyria seeks to settle the land. They, they seek to repopulate the land. But Second Kings chapter 17 tells us there's a problem. There's a big problem. There was no one in this sort of repopulated land who was able to teach the law of the God of that land. And so they find an Israelite priest who eventually is sent to them in order to teach them God's law. Now, if you're wondering what the outcome of this is, you could probably guess it was a mixed bag. There were some good things. There were some bad things. It was a mixture of religion. Second Kings chapter 17, quote, They feared the Lord, but also served other gods. And then uh, verse 34 sums it up sort of bluntly this way. To this day, they do according to their former manner. They do not fear the Lord. So when these people who surrounded God's people, when they come and kind of say, can we help? They're not being exactly true when they say we worship the same God. I mean, they do in part, but not fully. I mean, for, for a modern illustration, it would be like a, a Mormon coming and knocking on your door and saying, I mean, I worship the same God. I call myself a Christian. I read the New Testament. I believe in hell. And you'd be like, yeah, but not really, right? That's the sort of situation going on here. It was subtle, but Zerubbabel and the leaders knew what was going on, and they said, nope. You can't have any part in rebuilding. And actually, you know, uh, Zerubbabel is actually quite nice with it. He just basically says, um, well, the, the King Cyrus who gave us the orders to come back and rebuild, he told us and us alone to do it. So take it up with him. Well, in many ways, God's people, as they rejected the surrounding nations, uh, kind of asking to help, they were right to reject it. Because when you think of Israel's historic sin, it's always been the historic sin of syncretism. God's people's sin, their sort of besetting sin, it wasn't rejecting God. It was always adding other gods. Right? It was never the sin of theological subtraction. It was always the sin of theological addition. 
Atheism wasn't their temptation. It was functional polytheism, which was their Achilles heel time and time again. And so when these people come and they ask to help lay some brick and hammer some nails, it seems subtle, but, but they don't want their help. They know historically where this might take them. They want the purity of their worship at the center, and so they reject their help. Temptation comes to, the, to us like this, doesn't it? it? It comes to us subtly. I think this really is why C.S. Lewis's fictional work, Screwtape Letters, is so enduring in our life. If you haven't read that book, I would encourage you to. I actually think we have one in the bookstall. You can purchase it there. It is a wonderful book of Christian discipleship. And don't worry, I'm not going to ruin it. I hate it when people do this. I won't ruin the book. But the, the, the story is a, a fictional account of two demons having a conversation about how they might tempt other humans or um, tempt humans. But really, you can't put down that book or finish that book without realizing that the enemy the enemy majors in subtlety and craftiness. As one demon says to another in Lewis's book, it's funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Demons are crafty. They know our weaknesses. They know how to exploit many of them. Sometimes even just by keeping things out of our minds, sometimes just by preoccupying our minds. You know, even with good things, fine things, but nevertheless make us neglect greater things. I think just as a plug, this is why we want to talk about technology in the gospel. Because so often what technology can do, if we're, if we're not careful, is that it can squeeze our passions and our hearts and our time, and we can just step back and realize, man, I haven't thought about God in hours or days or weeks or months. God's people need to be wise, and here we see God's people being wise as this sort of subtle opposition comes in the form of asking to help rebuild. They were right to reject it. But opposition doesn't, it might start subtly, it never ends subtly, does it? Look, look at verse 4. The people around them set out to discourage them, make them afraid. They hire counselors to work against them, and they frustrate them. So in response to the rejection, you have a, and I don't know how else to sort of illustrate it or, or explain it or, you know, pronounce it. It's just a, a rain of of harassment. They just constantly harass God's people. And they do so, look, look at it, they do it in a variety of forms. They're sort of creative in their harassment. When one doesn't work, they just take up a new form. It's also persistent. The, the, the Hebrew here, it's a string of participles and communicating it's just ongoing, consistent, time and time again, harassment. And then it makes perfect sense why the author would then flash forward 70 years. It's as if to communicate, and this happened a long time, a lifetime of harassment. 
So, so let me just sort of put this into perspective, put the kind of events together. You have, starting in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, God's people, they begin to prioritize God. They, they rebuild the altar in the temple, A+. Plus. Then they, the surrounding nations kind of come to them and say, we want to help. And they say, nope, you've got no business at this point helping us, A+. Plus. Obedience. Shouldn't blessing now flow? Shouldn't peace, shouldn't opposition cease? Not in this case. Not to be a downer. Not in our case either. Right? As we prioritize God, as we follow God, as we begin to work for God, as we begin to sacrifice for God, as God starts to grow us and mature us, Well, that is the very furnace in which opposition grows hotter and hotter. Quoting Lewis again, from hell's perspective, a moderate religion is as good as no religion at all. In other words, a moderate religion or sort of a half-hearted religion, well, I mean, that's nothing to worry about. From hell's perspective, just leave them alone. They'll they'll shoot themselves. But, but, But someone who is following God, who's prioritizing God, who's talking to others about God, who's maturing in God, well, that needs to be opposed. Just know this, that the more vibrant a Christian is in their devotion to God, their obedience to God, the more dangerous they are. Or think about it this way, a church filled with those sorts of people, a church filled with people following Jesus is a dangerous church, a church to be opposed We shouldn't be alarmed by this. We shouldn't be alarmed seeing opposition in chapter 4. We shouldn't be alarmed by any and all opposition we experience now. Actually, far from being alarmed, it should be of encouragement to us. It should be an assurance to us. It should assure us that we are united with Christ. And the enemy is seeking to thwart that union. Paul would later write in the book of Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Look once again in verse 6. I I think it's interesting that that word in verse 6 for accusation, it's very semantically close to the word Satan. Satan. There's something satanic about the opposition we see in chapter 4. These, these, the, God's people in chapter 4, I mean, they were experiencing what Paul would say are nothing less than the flaming darts of the evil one. Jesus himself would say to the church, in this world you will have many troubles. So how do we endure? By way of application, how, how do we endure in persistent opposition? Well, we endure because we know the end of the story. You see, God's people, as we'll soon see, they endured in Ezra. But, but, but there's someone greater who endured. Jesus Christ himself endured hardship. Jesus Christ himself endured slander. Jesus Christ himself endured persecution. He endured a cross. He endured death. And how did he endure? A life of pain 
and suffering. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. How did he endure it all? The book of Hebrews tells us how he endured it. He endured it for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Jesus Christ did not endure his life and his death while sort of rolling his eyes, going, ah, ah, they do it again. They keep, you know, worshiping other gods. I'm just tired of them, but I'll just die for them and be done with it. That's not the display. That's not the description we see of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, he, he endured the cross for joy, the joy set before him. Now, I, I, any sort of illustrating of this point, it's going to fall. But, but this is the best way I can illustrate this. And it's far from perfect, but it might get you a sense of which what I'm talking about. When my daughter was around two, we wanted to get her one of those Strider bikes. But un- unfortunately, it wasn't in the, the family budget. And so uh, I, I sort of couldn't buy it for her in a season, yet I just... I really wanted to buy her one. And so I went to play it against sports and they had a Strider bike. And so I went back and I took with me my Scotty Cameron Titleist putter that I had. Now, if you're not a golfer, let me just tell you, it is a nice and very expensive putter. I love that putter. And I grabbed that putter and I went to play it against sports and I sold it to them. I traded that putter for a Strider bike. I think they got the better end of that deal, but I got home. I drove home with an orange Strider bike. And let me just tell you this. I broke the speed limit driving home. I mean, in one sense, I miss my putter, and yet I can tell you this, that for the joy that I saw on my daughter's face when she saw that orange Strider bike, It didn't feel like a sacrifice. I would have done it time and time and time again. The joy of that moment made me endure that small pain. And that is what we experience in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was not an annoyance. Jesus did not roll his eyes. It was joy before him that he endured the cross. It was painful, more painful than we can ever understand, ever imagine, But he did so. Jesus Christ himself endured that pain for the joy that was set before him. He died gladly. He died joyfully. He endured that joy, the joy that was set before him. That's how we endure in this season as well. By setting the infinite joy of God before our eyes, before our hearts, before our minds, before our souls, and feasting on that great joy and that great union we have in Jesus Christ. Because there's one opposition that we will not experience any longer in the kingdom of God. We will experience opposition, but there's one opposition we will not experience, and that is the opposition that we will experience because of our sin in light of a holy God, that opposition is gone. And as we understand that, as we meditate on that truth, as we experience that truth, as we are thankful for that truth, as it begins to well up this joy and this passion and this excitement, endurance is possible. 
Even this sort of endurance that we saw in Betty and Sam and, and the Stams, John and Betty Stam, right before their death, they were meditating on the cross of Jesus Christ. And as they did so, they endured. Opposition will come. Trouble will come. But take heart because Jesus has overcome. Now, we, early on in chapter 4, these, these sort of, this opposition, it's, it's subtle. It's consistent. But it's also effective. Look at verse 6. In verse 6 and 8, leaders of the surrounding people, they, they come together to write a letter. Actually, there's, there's multiple letters referenced here, but one letter is in focus. In verses 9 and 10, you sort of have a preamble of the letter, and then in verses 11 through 16, you have the letter itself. And this letter was written to the then king, remember this is the flash forward, the then king, King Artaxerxes. And this letter, it was well-crafted. Do you notice this when Phil read this? I mean, I, I just assume that it had many drafts. Every word was picked with precise uh, choice to just maximize effect. It was a masterpiece of propaganda. It was a propaganda to sort of incite and enrage and impassion the king in order to stop the rebuilding process. This letter, this, this sort of propaganda, it peddled in one of the oldest and most powerful tools known to man. It peddled in fear. Look, look at it. Verse 13. Or verse, we'll look at verse 12 first. God's people are called rebellious. Jerusalem is called a wicked city. And then the author in verse 13 lays down his carefully crafted argument. Basically says, if they rebuild... If they refinish the city and the wall, they're not going to pay their taxes any longer. No tribute. And the royal bank of Persia is going to suffer because of it. The other then communicates with some sort of pseudo-piety in verse 14. Basically says, I'm just, you know, they're just writing as concerned citizens. They honestly don't want the king to be dishonored. And if the king wants proof, doesn't kind of believe these people, well... Unfortunately for God's people, the Babylonians took good notes. All they need to do is go to their community library and read of this rebellious people, and it will support this sort of propagandized narrative. Israel was rogue. They've always been rogue, and they're about to go rogue. And then verse 16, we've got our clincher. Quote, we, we, we inform the king that if the city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. I mean, talk about peddling fear, right? The possibility of that happening would be economically disastrous to the kingdom. The writer of this letter slanders God's people exaggerates claims, most notably stirs up the seeds of fear in the king's heart. This is what propaganda does. It's why it's so effective. It's why we still use it today, right? Marketing strategies, advertisement strategies still peddle fear as a way of mobilizing. I mean, I'd be, re you know, it's, it's, it's low-hanging fruit right now, but, but, but politically, 
the left, the right, they do it equally. Or maybe not equally, but they both have a temptation to do it because it so easily motivates. You expose a fear. There are different fears, but you expose a fear and you try to motivate because of that fear. And here we have this letter, this propaganda letter. It has its effect. Verse 17, the king moves to action. The king replies and writes back. The king does his research, spends some time in the library, and he's convinced that the city of Jerusalem has a long history of rebellion against other kings. And so verse 21, the king gives his, he gives his kind of declarative order. He puts a kibosh to the rebuilding. Verse 22, why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interest? And then in verse 23, the, the men who got this, you know, sent the original letter, then they received this letter back. You can almost sense as you're reading it, they're like skipping down to Jerusalem. And as they read this, they're just gloating over each and every word. They did it. They were victorious. The hammer stopped. The bricks stopped being laid. God's people seemingly have lost. The rebuilding process is at a standstill. And the surrounding nations... Well, they've won. The long reign of consistent harassment finally worked. The last verse of chapter 4 sums it all up. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Chapter 3, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, kind of ends with some excitement. Not this week, huh? This week ends with opposition and momentary failure. Now, I think if we're honest, life can feel like this, can't it? We have discouragement after discouragement. Opposition rises and seems to not fall. I mean, we prayed about it, but I've heard of churches, I've heard of churches not thinking about closing. I've heard of churches literally closing, probably never to reopen Sometimes it can feel like the church is on the wrong side of history. But that's not the whole story. Because there is a glimmer of hope I want to point out just quickly and lastly here in the text. And the glimmer of hope has to do with the relationship between Israel and the surrounding people. The surrounding people, mostly to the north, who intermarried, who worshipped God, but then mixed that with the worship of other gods. Those same people who harassed and slandered and sent this note, they're called something because of the, where, where they live. These are Samaritans. And these Samaritans, they were excluded from helping God's people. They were enemies of God's people. They were excluded from the worship with God's people. But there would come a time when that would no longer be the case. In John 4, Jesus met a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, whose sins are kind of laid bare before her. Jesus exposes her sins. There are multiple marital sins. It's a sin of adultery, a sin that ought to exclude her forever from the worship of God. 
Not only is she a Samaritan, she's also an adultering Samaritan. She is, in one sense, doubly damned. Even so, Jesus has a conversation, and the conversation revolves around worship. The woman says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you said that, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See, even at that time, there was a debate about worship. And Jesus replied by saying this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The woman then said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In John 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, and like a surgeon, he diagnoses her problem. He exposes her sin, he exposes her idolatry, but he doesn't push her away. And he doesn't exclude her. Instead, he invites her to worship. A worship centering around himself. Jesus opens this door. It is the greatest door. A door that all people can enter. A door for Jews and Samaritans alike. A door for all sinners to enter. A door for all to come and drink a door for all those who are thirsty. And all those who walk through this door, they find no divine opposition. God doesn't lock this door. All who seek God, regardless of their past, regardless of their background, regardless of where they came from or what they've done, all who seek God find that door open and God himself standing at that door and a feast awaiting them. As the suffering apostle John wrote in his apocalyptic revelation, if anyone hears Jesus' voice and opens the door, Jesus will come in and dine with him. God's work will be opposed. Endure. There is a feast awaiting us. Endure. In this world, we will have many tribulations, but take heart, Jesus has overcome. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that in the midst of all of our oppositions, in the midst of the, the small oppositions, the small trials, the small suffering, and the, the, the things that feel like, like they're going to, like a storm, take us out, Lord. We, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to endure as we consider Jesus Christ and his endurance. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that we would all grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and how it applies to our lives, that we might, in a vibrant, passionate, and glorious way, be salt and light in this world for our good and your glory. Amen.